Well, I've been away for two weeks. Do any of you remember what I've been preaching about? Looking, looking around. All you newcomers, you have no idea. We are in First Peter. It was written to a group of churches that some of them I got to visit when I was in Turkey. It's, it's all in that part of the world. Because when they had come to Christ, um, their lives began to be different. Uh, and, and it made it so that they were different from the people around them. And sometimes it was not easy. It was, was not easy. And the last message that I did was about this. We come to Christ. What happens is we are born, we're made alive to things that the rest of the world isn't alive to that we didn't know before. We are born again to a living hope, the Bible says, to something that can never be taken away. So we start living for God. And what that happens to us is that we become more like Him, but God's ways are different from the world's. So sometimes we're simply different and people look at us. And that's what was happening in, in 1 Peter. And in the last sermon that I preached in verse 16, what is it to look like? We are to be holy, and a part of the meaning of that is to be different from the world, to be holy because God is. Because God is. So here we gather, and we're going to think about that again. We're going to think about the fact that when we come to Christ, and sometimes tough times come, we have a different perspective on that. That, that we're not overwhelmed when things in this world are taken away from us. Because we have an eternal God whose perspective becomes ours. Be different, be holy, different from the rest of the world. What is that like? Does that mean that I start having a halo that forms? Do I have one, Jim? No, no, Jim and Karen are saying no uh, here. What is it? I, I was thinking about this before I went to Israel, and it made me think about uh, a report that came from Simon Wiesenthal. Do any of you know that name? He was the famous Nazi hunter. Uh, went after those who had led the Nazi regime. And one of the main people he was after for many, many years was Adolf Eichmann, one of the main architects of the concentration camps, wanted to wipe out the Jewish people from the world. And his, one of the things that came to my mind was there was a trial that was held in Jerusalem, where we were, that was held in Jerusalem a number of years ago. And he went to visit that after Eichmann was, was found. And he wanted to see what this Eichmann was like. At the end of that trial, those uh, who were the jurists there determined this. I, I looked at it to find it. They, they determined that this Eichmann actually relished shipping Jews to their deaths by the hundreds of thousands, saying he was motivated by an ardent desire to blot out an entire people from the face of the earth. Well, you would think that a man like that would, you could just see him and you would see what evil is like. And Wiesenthal thought that it wouldn't be that. But Wiesenthal's testimony was very different. He went for the very first day and for the entirety of the trial. And this is his testimony. I put it here so you can see it. He said, on that day I saw Adolf Eichmann for the first time on the opening day of his trial in the courtroom in Jerusalem. For nearly 16 years I had thought of him practically every day and night. In my mind I had built up the image of a demonic superman. Instead, I saw a frail, nondescript, shabby fellow in a glass cell between two Israeli policemen. They looked more colorful and interesting than he did. There was nothing demonic about him. He looked 
like a bookkeeper who was afraid to ask for a raise. I was shocked to see that he was a man just like me. You see what Wiesenthal thought? That he would be the holy, different one, better than. But when he saw this man who would be the personification of evil in many of our minds, he saw a person who looked very much like everybody else. Uh, And in fact, we begin to see that what he did, we may have the potential, we do have the potential to do ourselves. So here I come as your pastor, back again, and say, we have to be different. In what way? Uh, the last message I brought, it, it, it's to be like God. Uh, we're to think thoughts more like the way God thinks. We're to make decisions more the way that God's Word directs us to make them. We're to have attitudes and relationships with people, not like the rest of the world has, but that are shaped by the relationships that God has. What does that look like? So we come back again to 1 Peter 1, 17-21, and I find it to be such a an insightful passage of God's Word, and I want us to look at it. Number one, we're going to come back to this question of what does a holy person, if we're going to be different from the world, and and holy means to be different from, what does that look like? We're going to revisit that. Then we're going to come about this. If to be holy means to be different from the world, and yet the world tries to make us think the same way it does, if we're going to be different from the rest of the world, um, what's going to ever motivate us to be that? Because so many times we just want to fit in, don't we? So that's what we're going to think about. Ready? So number one, again, what does this holy person look like? When the trials come, which Peter writes about, we're not overwhelmed by them. When temptations come, we want to do this, and we know God would have us to do that. We're going to go that way. What's going to make us different to become more like God? And we're going to find it in one specific word that's found there in verse 17, a new perspective on this. Since you call on a father... See, we have a new head of our family on this Father's Day. But our Father is different from, from fathers of this world often. He judges each person's work impartially. So since now that is the Father of our family, our lives are to be different. Uh, live your lives as, and my version says, strangers. Other versions say foreigners. Some will say aliens. Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. So what he's saying is this, when you and I become followers of Jesus and are made alive to God, it's going to put us out of sync with the rest of the world sometimes. Because, you know, all the advertising and media and everything in the world is going to say, this is what's important, your fame is important, and your your finances and investments, that's what's important, your clout is important. We're going to come to church and your pastor is going to say, no, 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 God says this is important. So we're we're going to become more and more, we're going to feel out of sync with the values of the world because we are following God's ways. Now, we were away for these two weeks. We were in Israel. Uh, then we were in Turkey. And then we were uh, in Greece. And it made me think about this in a new way. When you are sort of an outsider in a different country, first of all, everybody seems to know it. Uh, I was in Capernaum. And that's where Jesus did so many of his miracles. And I saw these young students come in. I love students, you know this. So students come in, I looked at them and I thought, you know, just looking at them, the way they walk, the way they have their haircuts, I think they're from Northern Europe. And I was guessing, where are they from? Sweden? Where might they be from? And then they came over to me and said, you must be a part of that American group over there. (laughs) How do they know that? How did I know that? 
haircuts, conduct, I mean, just different things that you come to know. You're a little bit... Now, what about for us as Christians? Well, this word, we're going to be strangers wherever we are in this world, made me think about what is it like to be an outsider in a different country. And there are three different ways we can be outsiders in another country. One, we can be what I would call immigrants wanting to assimilate. You know, a person born in another country, we have so many in our church who would be like that, who have moved for whatever reason to our country, but you want this to become your new country. And so even though there will be some differences, still you want to belong, find a You want to share the values that are at the heart of this new nation because you're going to be here for a while. So that's one way. An immigrant who is increasingly wanting to take on the ways and the values of the new country, the new culture that you're a part of. A second way, though, is to simply be a tourist. And that's what I was for the um, uh, past two weeks. And a tourist is more of an outside observer. You know you're just there for a little while. And so you're kind of looking at how they do things. You're dabbling. We're trying their kinds of foods. But usually, especially when you're in a tour group like we were in, you still sort of congregate with people like yourselves. Did you see how they acted over there? How do you handle this? So you're an outsider, you see, a tourist observing. But there's a third way that you can be an outsider in a different place. And that is the word that is used here. That's called an alien or a resident alien. Or a, or a foreigner, or the way my verse, a stranger. That is a person who's going to live in a country for a long time, but is still going to have an ultimate allegiance to one's own country. So, so that you come and you want to be a good citizen, but at the end of the day, the values of your king, of your leader, of your president are more important to you. Your identity in that other nation is more important to you than in this one. You don't want to belong and assimilate and become like the people here because you have a greater allegiance there. That is the word that is used here. And brothers and sisters, that is a perfect description to understand what it means to be holy in this world. You and I still live in this world wherever God puts us. We go into the same schools. We go into the same places of work. We live in the same communities. But now we have a new higher allegiance. We live for a different kind of a father and his ways trump everything in this world. And his ways are not the same as the ways of this world. That's what Peter is saying. So that sometimes when you live here and you go to work and you feel a little bit out of sync with the things important to everybody else, don't be surprised. That's what it means. We should show, it's it's better, we should show this world the love and compassion and justice of our God, whether they value it or not. So that's what we are called to do in the places where God has called us to be. We are to be resident aliens. We're supposed to love the place and the people around us where we are, but we have an allegiance that we have is to this new country that we're a part of, a citizenship with God Himself as our leader. Is is that clear? Christians have been wrestling with what that looks like for centuries. And so I found an old letter that's called the Letter to Diognetus. Uh, It was a Christian either in the first century, I mean a long time ago, or maybe in the early second century. We really don't know who wrote it. We don't know who this person is to whom he wrote it. But I'll tell you, he probably said it as well as any pastor ever could. Now, as I read this to you, and I think we're going to have it on the screen, I, I want you to think about your own life wherever God has put you. Um, your work, school, community, what is other than, what is different about you in that place? 
Look at what this letter said. Christians are indistinguishable from other men either by nationality, language, or customs. So those aren't the things different. Christians do not inhabit separate cities of their own or or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. And yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. So, they live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disability of aliens. So any country can be their homeland. But for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. They share their meals, but not their wives. I have to stop there. Do you know that this is one of the things that's always set Christians apart from the rest of the world? Our commitment to be faithful to our marriage vows? I kind of think we need to recapture that, don't you think? So they'll share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but they're not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they yet live on a level that transcends the law. So that Christians love all people, though all people persecute them. They often live in poverty, but enrich many. They often suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. Oh, it's to that that you and I have been called. It's not an easy way of life. Can you imagine it? So this is what we are to do. God has put us in this world and we're going to experience the tough times that Peter talks about like everybody else, but with a different perspective. We're going to face temptations that everybody else does, but we have a different reason uh, to live and a different one who says, live this way, not that. And it comes about because we have a desire to become more like our Heavenly Father. Now that brings me to the second question. All right, if that's what we're supposed to be, And God's word is going to tell us to live and think in ways that the rest of the world isn't living and thinking. That's not going to be easy, is it? Because you and I are shaped by the world. You know, we we, we turn on the television set and all the ads that we watch are going to try to shape us to have the same values of the world. So what is going to motivate you and me to live God's way rather than the world's way? It's a big question. And that's what verses uh, 18 through 21 are all about. And I'll just give you two phrases to help sum up what he says. One is what I call the fear factor, and the other one I'm going to call the heart factor. Got that? The fear factor and the heart factor. Uh, The fear factor comes from this interesting phrase in verse 17. Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. And it's talking about the fear of God. And it underscores something that permeates the Bible. Proverbs 1.7 the beginning of wisdom is the fear of. Anybody know? Okay, I know. the Lord. See, I have to see if you're with me here. The fear of the Lord. Now, to our world, that sounds so strange, but it really isn't. Uh, my version translates it uh, in respect-filled fear. Um, what it's talking about is this: wisdom is the way God's made us to live. We were made in the image of God. Genesis chapter one. So that when we start reading, God saying, this is how you're to live, even though the world tells you to live that way. Really, it's God's way that's the true way to live. And so when we live that way, 
We just know it. It's wisdom. This is the way we have joy and peace and, and can handle what happens in this world. So the beginning of that, the thing that will launch us in that direction, is that ultimately the person that we want to honor and to please is God Himself. Now, how on earth is this to be understood? Uh, we must have some young men here who, for the first time, are falling in love with somebody. Uh, I was picking on John's sons in the first service. I don't know if they feel this way, but, you know, the, can any of you remember the first time you fell in love with somebody? And you, you start thinking, I wasn't really living until I met you. You know, all, all these sorts of things. And, and, and your deepest desire is to please that other person. Your greatest fear and anxiety is that they won't be happy with you. And what we find is that the ultimate desire that we have is to make sure that God is pleased and honored by the way that we live and the way we are. And when that is true, when ultimately what we want to do is please God, then we'll live His way rather than the world's. Now, how will that happen? I'll give you a little formula, a little three-step formula that I drew together from Isaiah 6. For those who don't know the Scriptures well, Isaiah 6 is really the testimony of an 18-year-old man who went into the house of God one day. Kind of like this. And when he walked in, what happened is what should happen every time you walk into this place. He had an encounter with God. He said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He, he, saw God not, he saw the service not as just being something entertaining, but he was going to meet God. And it was one awesome experience. He fell on his face. He saw the power, the majesty, the holiness of God. So he saw God as he is. So the first step is see God as he is. It's why you need to come to church and why a church has to get away from trying to become a place just that entertains. This has got to be a place when you meet, come into this place, you know that God is here and you see Him because it will change your life. If I just kind of give you a how-to sermon, maybe something will happen. But if you meet God, it will change your life. And that's what Isaiah did. Then second, then you look at yourself. Maybe we should have mirrors on the back of the pew. And you see that you, you and I are not like God. God is all-powerful, we are not. God is pure, and we are not. God is holy, and, and we are not. God knows everything, and we do not. And then we feel like that young Isaiah did. Woe is me. I'm a sinful person. I have sinful lips. And the people around me aren't any better. <laughs> That's what he said. You read it in Isaiah 6. I live among all these people who are unclean too. And here we are in the presence of God. So it starts with seeing God as He is. And then we see ourselves and we feel so unworthy. And then thirdly, we have the opportunity to respond to the grace of God. We find that this powerful God is also good and loves us. So that what happened, you can read it in Isaiah. I'll tell it to you because I love it so much. There were these seraphs, whatever they were, that were flying around this powerful God and they went to the altar and there was a flaming coal in the altar and took one of those flaming coals and with it came flying toward Isaiah, right toward his lips that he had said were unclean. You know what he thought was going to happen, that he was going to be burned alive. And so with those lips, with those, that tongue from the altar of God, that hot coal touched Isaiah's lips and then these words that came from God, see. This that has come from me has touched your lips. Your sins I will remember no more. 
Well, yeah, so that's worthy of a few hallelujahs. Uh, I think because the same thing is to happen. So there, there we have these three steps that have to happen. You come in here, we experience God, or you open His Word and you meet Him. You look at yourself and say, I'm not worthy of anything. Then you find out what God is like. He is not only holy and perfect, He is gracious and good and ready to forgive and start again with you. And you say, thank you, Lord. And you want to please Him. Uh, Jim and Karen have been so involved in the entertainment industry and I think that people who are in that industry should understand this as well as anyone. A quote that comes from the head of drama of the university I used to serve, uh, Dr. Kristen Lindholm, something that really helped me. I was talking to her about this and she said, you know, we live every day of our lives asking, who is my audience? Whom do I want to impress by the way I dress? Or the words I speak in the academy. The other faculty members? A young man or woman? Am I afraid of how they will think of me if I make a mistake or perform poorly? See that? So the fear of the Lord is a life lived with the main concern being for what God thinks. When that is the central concern of my thought and my decision making, I will be wise. I will be holy. I call it the fear factor. It begins in our mind. Who is the one you want to please? Do you remember back a number of years ago, these little bracelets everybody wore, WWJD? And so many people sort of laughed at that. It seemed so trivial. What would Jesus do? I thought it was a lot better question than a lot of other people thought it was. I think Peter would reshape that. I think the question would be, what would please Jesus? What would honor him? And if that is the question that directs our thinking and our decisions and our words, I'll tell you, we'll become more and more like God. Which brings me to the second thing. What will make us actually long to please Him? And I'll call it the heart factor. I'll try to point this out quickly. Look at verses 18 and 19. For, because, what's going to make us want to please God? You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were ransomed, but with the precious blood of Christ. So there it is. There it is. If you and I want our lives to be different, you come to church and you know that there are some parts of your life that are not what they should be, where does it start? And we see it doesn't start with new resolutions, though we need resolutions. I'm asking what the most important thing with a starting point. It doesn't start with, with spiritual disciplines. Those spiritual disciplines are important. I believe in them. Prayer, giving, it's part of the offering thing today. It's, it's a part of it, but it's not the beginning point. And techniques, no. What does it start with? It starts with us looking at the cross again and remembering that our sins, for us to be in the family of God and to have a new beginning, required the blood of Jesus. And Peter says, for, you've got to live for Him and please Him because you and I know some things. What do we know? Number one, we know the cost of our ransom. We know that our ransom cost the precious blood of Jesus. Now, that, that term translated redeemed or ransomed, that was a technical term in the first century world for, for a slave market. 
We don't have those now, so I have to tell you about it. In a slave market, they bought and sold people in the ancient world. You know that, don't you? So some people had been born into slavery. And other people had messed up themselves and gotten into such trouble that they couldn't get out of it. So they sold themselves uh, into slavery so that they could survive. So this is the word that was used for the price that would be paid to buy a slave. This is the word he uses. You and I were bought. And the picture, you could almost... Imagine it, a slave market with, with you being there as a person who's not free, shackled, up for sale, but you long to be free, even if you've never experienced it, right? This is not the way you want to live. And someone pays a price for you. So up comes the person and you know, unlocks the chains. And you think that this new master is just going to make you a, a, a slave again. But instead, he says, I have bought you so that now you can be free. So that now you can live. This is the word that is used. And it says that this precious blood of Christ, which is what he paid for us, was from one without blemish or without spot. And what that's talking about, for those who don't know the Bible well, takes us back to the Old Testament. All of God's people, the people of Israel, were in slavery in Egypt. And then eventually God was going to set him free. But he had to soften the Pharaoh's heart in Egypt. Do you know this story? So he sent these ten plagues to soften his heart. But it didn't soften his heart. So in the tenth one was the worst of all. The oldest child in each family, oldest son, was going to have the life taken. And, and the, the phrase that is used for the, for the, uh, is without spot or blemish. But for those who wanted the rescue of God, they could take a lamb without blemish and without spot, kill it and put its blood on the doorposts and then the angel of death would pass by. That is the word that is used, that God has sent a lamb and the ransom price for you and me was his death. It was a costly, costly death. I'll tell you, it would be saying to us in our material world, all the gold in Fort Knox, I, I, I was thinking in the first service, do we still have gold in Fort Knox? This is an illustration I used to say all the time. All the oil in the Middle East, all the investments of Bill Gates and Warren Buffett could not ransom our souls. What it took was the sinless Son of God hanging on the cross, and when we see that, then we say, thank you, Lord. We know the cost of our redemption. And in verse 20, he says, there's something else we know. We know the awe-inspiring certainty of God's plan. Look at verse 20, the way he puts it. This one, Jesus, who gave his life for us, was chosen before the creation of the world and has been revealed to us. I'll just make a, a brief word about this. It means that God had an eternal plan. Uh, that, that he wasn't caught off guard by what happened in Genesis 3. Some people seem to think that. God created Adam and Eve, and he thought, oh, now that's going to work out. And then they sinned, and he said, oh, no, what do I do now? I've got to come up with some sort of contingency plan. What do I do with these people made my... That's not the way it was. God knew that when he made people in his image and gave us the opportunity to make real decisions, gave us real responsibility, that what happened in Genesis 3 would happen and happens in our lives too, that we walk away from God. But God loves the world and He loves you and me. 
And he's had an eternal plan. Before the creation of the world, he had a plan to rescue people like us and remake us. Now, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? How is this that God has an eternal plan that it's going to happen? And yet, he gives us the opportunity to make real, responsible decisions. It's mind-boggling. All that I want you to know is this. I won't try to explain that today. Nor do I know whether I could explain that. God's ways go beyond my understanding. That's for sure. All that I can say is what Peter says. You and I have learned that when we enter into this relationship with God, that He has promised He would remake us and He won't, do, he won't be done with us until He's completed it. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And He's going to work in our lives until we truly are holy. Until our lives are all that God would have them to be. And we know it because the Bible keeps saying it. We, we know how much our ransom costs, the blood of Christ. We know that we become a part of the eternal work of God. And third, it just drives it home. We know the privilege of benefiting personally from this plan of God. Look at verse... Twenty. The very last phrase. Why did Jesus give his life? And just make note of this phrase. Now let's fall on our knees. It was for your sake. It was for your sake. This death of Christ on the cross. Um, I was in um, Athens, Greece. I think it was Thursday night. I was with several of our church people, but I'm a big soccer fan. And some of the World Cup games were on. And I wanted not to be antisocial, but I wanted to find out what was happening in the soccer games. True confession time. All right, so I sneak away just for a moment. (coughs) I need to get away for a moment and go in and sit and watch uh, the soccer game. And there's a man sitting next to me. I don't know where he was from. And you're an American, aren't you? Yes. Um, what do you think of these wars you are in? In Afghanistan and Iraq. I like that. Are there cameras around here? Who is this? What is his view? You know how it is, don't you? Well, I'll let you into how your pastor thinks about things. I thought, now how do I approach this? I said, you know, we just came through Memorial Day and we remembered how costly all the wars were that we've been engaged in. And Memorial Day means we look back And uh, we asked the question, was it worth it? The bloodiest of all the wars in the U.S. was the Civil War. Did you know that? I asked you, was it worth it? That we don't have slavery like that in our own country. Was it worth it? It it was costly. It's the issue. And any leader, any decision you make, you've got to ask that question. Is it worth it? And it's so hard. It's it's easier at the end to look back. It's so hard at the beginning to look forward. And when you're in the middle of it, you're not sure. That's kind of where we are with some of these things. We've got to pray for our leaders that they'll have more wisdom than they even know they have when, when our leaders make these kinds of decisions. Because the question is, you know the lives a war will cost. You know uh, the, the financial cost, billions. You know the ecological damage that every war has always caused. And you've got to ask, is it worth it? All right, you can, we can talk about that another day. But that brings us right to this question. 
when God decided he would enter into this war against evil and sin in this world and sent his one and only son to give his life on the cross, the question is, was it worth it? I mean, it was enormous cost. And God says it was. And it was because it was for your sake. Can you believe that? And it's only when you and I are grateful for that, deeply grateful for that, that we'll say, Father, my life is yours. I can't believe you did that. I'll live for you. Tim Keller, let me see if I can find that quote. Tim Keller, the pastor in Manhattan, put it this way. You will only be as holy as the degree to which you know how much your sin cost Jesus. If we take it for granted, we'll live for ourselves. You will only be as holy to the degree that you know how much your sin cost Jesus. That you look at that cross and you know it was for my sake that he gave his life. How grateful are you? What difference does it make? I'm a second generation Christian. My father became a Christian when I was five or six years old. He was in his 30s. Uh, my father, through his whole life, just still can't believe that God would take him. It's only now that he tells my son Brandon the stories of what he did before he was a Christian. He would never tell me. <laughs> he tells Brandon. He just still can't believe that God saved him from all the stuff he did. He just can't believe it. And he's so grateful. Anytime he hears people talking about Jesus, he's so excited and so thankful. I'm a second generation Christian. And I'm like many of us. Some of you are third generation Christians. And, you know, we, we've heard these stories. They're read to us before we go to bed. We've heard them on the radio. We've heard so many sermons. Pastor Greg preached about the precious blood of Jesus. I've heard other preachers preach a whole lot better than he did. Ho-hum. Then we come to church, we see new believers. And we have some, we have some new believers who are here. And they are so excited. New believers uh, hear these words that Jesus said to Peter, John 13 to 14. Peter saying, don't go to the cross, Jesus. I'm not worth that. I'll die for you. And Jesus turning back to him saying, oh, Peter, you can't die for me. That's my way. No, Peter, I know you're going to fail. But I'm going to die for you. Your way is not my way. Your way is me. I am the way to God. Trust me. That's what you've got to do. That new believer reads that. That's what? Just trust what he has done? And then you read these parts that if anyone is in Christ, regardless of your background, you get to be a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. It's all gone. As far as east is from the west, new Christians, you read that and you say, I can't believe it. You read Romans chapter 7 and 8. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you say, well, why didn't anybody tell me this before? And you're so excited you've got to tell, you want to sing better than the rest of the people around you in church are singing. And we second and third generation people meet the new Christians and say, oh, the enthusiasm will wear off. Oh, we've sung that song before. They've just gone overboard a little bit. I tell you, they have not gone overboard. We have gone underboard. We have gone underboard. Oh, it is so much my prayer 
that somehow with the frailty of my human abilities that when, when I have the privilege of opening this word to you and me, that we will again see the Lord, sinless Lord Jesus Christ on that cross. And we will know that God Himself asked, is it worth it? And that we will say, He said it was because it was for my sake. Hallelujah, thank you, thank you Lord. And that Jesus didn't die for our sins just to leave us messed up as we were, that former way of life, but to set us free and to begin living as we were made to live. I'll I'll close with this illustration. Back again to that time in, in Israel when they were in slavery and didn't want to be in slavery and they wanted the future to be different and saw no way to get there. On that morning after that tenth plague, can you imagine being the eldest son in one of those families? You knew what was going to come. And when you woke up in the morning, you could hear the wailing and weeping of the homes around you, the mourning and the sorrow that filled the nation. But you're the oldest son. And you look at yourself and say, I'm alive. There's a, I'm a real... I'm a, what's happened? And you get up out of bed and you walk out door and you look back and you, oh, you see that doorpost and you see the blood that was there. Then you walk back into the house and you see that hearth. And in it you see the charred remains, maybe some of the bones that are still there. What do you think? What do you think? Don't you look at that and know that because that lamb died, I live. Because that lamb died, I live. And I cannot live as I used to live. I must now walk toward freedom and toward the promised land. My brothers and sisters, when we gather in this place and this word is held up, we see that cross, we look at the Lord Jesus who loves us and we see him on the cross and we say, because that lamb died, we live. It is an attitude of gratitude, an attitude of gratitude that will motivate us to live for God in this world. So let me leave us with one final verse. It's the one that was at the end of this section for Peter. It is through this Jesus that you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So now, your faith and your hope is not in what the rest of the world's faith and hope is in. Your faith and your hope is in the eternal God. To his glory. Amen. Amen.